Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented value-based system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, our focus today is on clinical decision support, and we'll be speaking with a physician executive and entrepreneur who has spent decades working to improve and advance providers' ability to make good decisions in the care of their patients. There are hugely important implications to this for patients, for providers, and for payers, but I think most importantly for patients, and uh, we'll hear about that from our featured guest today. So our guest is Dr. Scott Weingarten, who uh, joined Premier about five months ago, maintaining his title of CEO of Stanson Health, the company he co-founded, and uh, a company that was acquired by Premier. Prior to this, he was the Senior Vice President and the Chief Clinical Transformation Officer at Cedars-Sinai Hospital. His tenure there at Cedars-Sinai lasted 25 years, which is remarkable. And he continues to work with that hospital as a consultant to the CEO, a professor of medicine, and a member of the medical staff. Uh, Dr. Weingarten was the co-founder, president, and chief executive officer of Zinc's Health, that's Z-Y-N-X, which is the leader for order sets and care plans for electronic health records. Uh, Scott sold Zinc, Zinc's Health to the Cerner Corporation and later to the Hearst Corporation. He's also the co-inventor of three software patents granted by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, Scott graduated from UCLA's medical school. He completed his internship, residency, and fellowship in internal medicine at Cedars-Sinai. He also completed a fellowship in a National Center for Health Services Research Program at the RAND UCLA Center for Health Policy and Study. And uh, while there, he also received a Master's of Public Health degree at the uh, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. He's published about 100 articles and editorials on healthcare quality improvement, clinical decision support, and related topics, and has authored numerous chapters on improving the quality of patient care in some of the leading internal medicine textbooks. I can't tell you how uh, excited and delighted I am to, to have this opportunity to speak to Scott. He and I have spoken a number of times, but this is really the first time I'm going to have this uh, opportunity to really interview him. So Scott, without further ado, how are you doing today? Thank you very much, Seb, for that extremely kind uh, introduction. I'm doing just fine. Thank you. So let's dive in, Scott. I've been familiar with Stanson for now at least a couple of years. How long has Stanson been around? When did you found it? And could you give us all a little bit of uh, high-level background on exactly what Stanson offers and what clinical decision support means? Yes, we founded Stanson uh, approximately six years ago out of Cedars-Sinai Health System in Los Angeles. And, and Stanson was founded to be a clinical decision support company. There were a number of clinical and are a number of clinical decision support companies out there. But at the time, we saw an opportunity to create a company that would query information in the electronic health record, initially discrete data, but then read and interpret free text information and provide guidance to healthcare providers during the course of care, while the doctor, the nurse, the pharmacist is seeing the patient, both in the ambulatory setting and in the hospital setting, making recommendations you should consider offering this drug, uh, performing this imaging procedure, because the care will be better 
that uh, this drug has been associated with a lower mortality rate, lower morbidity rate, uh, fewer hospitalizations. And also you might wanna consider not doing this test or this procedure because it has been shown that the harm exceeds the benefit or there are no benefits. So we saw a great opportunity because we have uh, healthcare providers now um, on electronic health records, uh, organizations spending uh, a significant amount of money to purchase, implement, and maintain electronic health records, both in the ambulatory setting and the hospital setting, and, and a strong desire by everyone to see benefit of this investment. Uh, benefits in terms of better patient care um, and uh, better value of care. So that was really the goal. And we also were familiar with the literature, which showed that if you provide real-time guidance to healthcare providers, context-specific information about one should consider doing or not doing for the patient sitting in front of you, given that patient's uh, clinical status, social determinants of care, uh, demographic information, that one is significantly more likely to uh, impact the care, influence the care than if one did not. Yeah, no, that's really, that's a great summary. So the things that pop out at me as I'm hearing you define it, the founder of this, number one, it's embedded in the electronic medical record system, whatever system you're using. And I assume that you work across multiple uh, electronic medical record systems. Yes, that is correct. So we started out with the high market share electronic health records, those who have the highest market share, both in the ambulatory setting and the hospital setting, because there are a number of electronic health records. And we thought for a system trying to reduce undesirable variation in care across the entire health system, the continuum of care, one needed to offer clinical guidance in more than one electronic health record. So it's embedded in the system. So you don't have to go out and go out of the system. You don't have to look something up in a book or an app on your phone. It's there real time. And that actually is the second thing that you mentioned. And I think it's, it sort of pops out at me is the, the idea that it is real time. You don't have to wait till after the patient leaves the exam room or the office. You don't have to go look it up somewhere. It's happening as you're seeing patients, right? That's exactly correct. So my background, I'm an internist, primary care physician by background, used to take care of a lot of patients. And although I tried my best and cared deeply about patients, I did make mistakes. And often it was because I didn't know what I didn't know. So it wasn't that I knew I needed to look something up and didn't take the time to do it. It's just I overlooked something. So an example would be, that uh, a number of years ago, I had this patient and she was a 53-year-old woman uh, and she was a marathon runner, very fit. Uh, and she would come see me uh, often in January or February before running the Los Angeles Marathon, which tended to be in March. And she would often have an overuse injury, her ankle or her knee. And she invested a fair amount of time in training for the marathon. And she concerned that her ankle hurt as any of us would be as well when you invest that much time to achieve a particular goal. And so I would address whatever the issue was at the time, her ankle or her knee. And then one year I said to her that I really would like you to schedule a physical exam, which she did. And then I ordered a mammogram on her, which showed breast cancer. And then I did what many healthcare providers would do and look at when was the last time a mammogram was ordered on this patient. And it was three years ago. 
And I knew the evidence. I knew that mammograms can potentially save lives. This patient was is very health conscious, and it wasn't that I recommended a mammogram and she refused. It was, I didn't think about it at the time. I thought about her knee or her ankle. And I recognized that had something have reminded me to order a mammogram earlier than three years, I would have done so. And she would have had the mammogram and perhaps breast cancer would have been detected earlier. Now, the good news is with this patient is that it was early stage breast cancer and she did fine, but she did fine really because of luck rather than the care I delivered. And I recognize that that was one example in the uh, care of my patients as a primary care physician, but that I'm not alone. I started talking to other healthcare providers and they all shared with me similar stories that it wasn't, they didn't fail to look something up. They just overlooked something at the time. If you have a thousand opportunities to make an error, to make a mistake, 10,000 opportunities, a hundred thousand opportunities, it's inevitable that you're going to make a mistake. Thank you for, for sharing that story. And I can't imagine that anyone who has practiced for any amount of time can't relate to that. To your point, we're only human. And how do you keep that in mind, those checklists? And, you know, the other thing as you were talking, what came to my mind was this issue of you, you talked about the right thing to do and, and sort of the evidence base of it. So I guess I'm wondering how many different types of clinical decision supports or clinical decisions have you created a support for? And how do you keep those up to date? Yes. So we have looked into a number of the evidence-based guidelines. So guidelines from the subspecialty societies, as well as landmark research. So we have a library of over 400 clinical decision support items that are available for health systems. And they pick and choose from the library and decide what would be appropriate for care at their organization. But the library is always growing. And each quarter, we produce more clinical decision support. And really, what are the issues that people care most about in certainly reducing mortality, morbidity, improving the value of care? But it might have to do with bundled payments or reducing opioid use and other issues that people recognize are significant quality and value concerns. And to your point, all of the information or virtually all of the information is perishable. So you need clinicians continuously reviewing the guidelines, reviewing the medical evidence to look for changes where an organization might rethink whether that clinical decision is appropriate in its current form is appropriate or needs to be updated and modified to reflect the most recent medical evidence. And do you have categories of these clinical decisions? And so is it preventive measures and some of them lab test ordering, radiology? How do you lump them? And also, are you, given what you just said, are you also bundling them to say to an organization, uh, hey, you know, you're in uh, a certain contract, MSSP, or a certain episode bundle or something like that. Here's metrics you might want to you know, have to include to support your providers in meeting those contracts and those those quality uh, and utilization outcomes? Is it, or is it just, you know, sort of a pick and choose and, and you let your customers do that? No, you're exactly right. So on one hand, it would be imaging, lab, medication, procedures. It might have to do with uh, reimbursement or clinical documentation uh, related to reimbursement, but it also might be around initiatives. 
Antimicrobial stewardship is a key initiative for you. Bundled payments is a key initiative. Reducing Medicare losses is a key initiative. So organizations might select clinical decision support that aligns with the strategic goals of their healthcare organization as well. So that's really neat. And I was, you know, I wanted to ask this question, it, it, sort of who is your primary customer? And I, you know, it seems to me that clearly for you, it came from you being an, a provider, a physician, an internal medicine primary care doctor, but also looking at your colleagues. So there's one customer to try to help them. And I do want to ask you about that because I, you know, I think the the first reaction is, well, is this an alert or something that's going to stop me in my workflow and slow me down? And is it adding more burden to me? And I think that's just a, you know, just an obvious question. I'm sure you're asked quite a bit and your colleagues at Stanson, but you did create it to help providers. And then of course, it helps the organization in terms of meeting contractual goals and metrics and outcomes, whether that be quality or utilization, appropriate utilization. And then third, it just obviously benefits the patient. So I'd like you to speak to those three sets of customers, or do you think about it in a different way? No, I think about it the uh, same way you do, Zev. But I think really the primary customers being the patient's and the healthcare providers. And to your point, the healthcare providers, anything that slows them down will be poorly received. And, and it should be poorly received. So we go through a lot of effort to make sure that any guidance that's provided in the workflow uh, is valuable to healthcare providers and they find valuable. And so the first thing we do is we take a look at the an inventory all of the existing clinical decision support that a healthcare organization might have. And this clinical decision support uh, did not come from Stanson, but often when there was an EHR go live, an organization thought there should be clinical decision support. And there was some organized process to implement clinical decision support across the organization. Now it's two or three or four or six years later, and many organizations have not gone through the work of identifying what clinical decision support it currently is being used has led to substantial changes in care and what clinical decision support is interrupting providers without offering any value. So the updates and maintenance and evaluation of clinical decision support is critical and you have to really clean house. When we moved into the home that we currently live in, I was really excited and, you know, I cleaned out the garage, we cleaned out the house and I actually enjoyed cleaning out the garage. But after we've been in the home for a number of years, I, I don't get excited about spending my weekend cleaning out the garage. And there is, uh, truth be told, a little bit of clutter in our garage. Same thing occurs at virtually all health systems. So they've inserted clinical decision support along the way. Many organizations have not evaluated does this clinical decision support that was previously implemented, does it save lives? Does it reduce morbidity? Does it improve value of care? So we would do an inventory and see, gee, how often does a clinical decision support fire before a provider changes an order? And we call that number needed to change. Does it fire 10 times before a provider changes an order? 100 times a thousand times. And we have found in many cases that clinical decision support can fire hundreds to potentially even a thousand times without impacting care. Then we look at the reasons why providers decide to reject or override a recommendation. 
And we look at free text and using machine learning, do sentiment analysis. And it could be things, I think this clinical decision support recommendation is really dumb. So we say it's key to prune the tree so that it bears the fruit. So the first thing is to remove existing clinical decision support. And often one, an organization can reduce the alerts by 20, 30, 40, sometimes even 50% before you really get started with the higher value clinical decision support. Second, you need to review the, not only the discrete data elements to determine whether clinical decision support is appropriate for an organization, but also the free text information. This is a really exciting area because if a provider has documented something in his or her note, why require them to also enter the information as discrete data element? That's redundant. That's not respecting the provider's time. That's not addressing provider burnout. So we'll, to the best of our ability, look at both discrete data and free text information, deciding when to suppress an alert. Next, we look at the false positive rate and only recommend clinical decision support if the false positive rate is lower than a certain threshold value, depending on the importance of that particular clinical decision support element. So there's a whole process involved with making sure that what providers see as high value can potentially save lives, reduce morbidity, and improve the value of care, rather than will be viewed as annoying, distracting, with little benefit to patients. So we think that whole process is absolutely critical. I mean, when I think about clinical decision support, it's very much like you described. There's an alert that's put in, embedded in. A lot of places have homegrown clinical decision supports. But what you're adding in here is a whole dimension of analysis of that before you even do anything, understanding what clinical decision supports exist, who's using them, who's ignoring them, what their impact is. And so is that what you do when you come into an organization, you actually set something up before you even put the alerts in place? A absolutely. I, I strongly believe there should be a whole process to review and optimize existing clinical decision support and a process to remove the low value clinical decision support alerts before even a single alert is inserted. Let me, let me give you one more example order sets and preference lists. They were often created when the electronic health record went live by well-intentioned, hardworking people. And order sets and preference lists were intended to reduce underuse, to remind uh, providers to do a certain thing. Remember to give a beta blocker, an ACE inhibitor, an ARB for this patient with heart failure. However, like drugs, order sets and preference lists have side effects or adverse consequences. So we found by looking at orders, for example, a number of opioid orders come from order sets and preference lists. So let's say for a preference list for general discharge might have opioids on it or outpatient order sets might have opioids on it. And our, as you know, Zev, our problem is with overuse of opioids, not underuse of opioids. So we recommend, after doing this analysis, looking at each order set and preference list to determine where um, opioids should be removed. Countless other examples, I'll just give you one more 
in terms of optimizing the environment before adding any alert. Cardiac monitoring and telemetry. Many organizations, if not most, put cardiac monitoring and telemetry on their general admission order set for medicine and surgery. And that can lead to overutilization of cardiac monitoring and telemetry. So what we did at Cedars-Sinai is we removed through the leadership of the cardiology department, many orders for cardiac monitoring and telemetry when it was inappropriate. Um, Why should we be reminding doctors uh, on a general surgery admission for a patient with uh, cholecystectomy, undergoing cholecystectomy or appendectomy, remind them about cardiac monitoring. So we removed, or the cardiology leadership removed it from a number of order sets and preference lists. We also added after removing alerts, the American Heart Association guidelines for the appropriateness of telemetry. And we found a very large reduction in inappropriate cardiac monitoring and telemetry use. And then we also looked at outcomes such as code blues, initiation of the rapid response team and mortality rates and found no worsening at all of outcomes and about a $3.7 million a year reduction in cost. So it was an opportunity to improve value of care by optimizing clinical decision support through the use of reviewing order sets, preference lists, and adding a few clinical decision support alerts. Yeah, that's a great, great story. And I'm glad you talked about outcomes. That was actually what I was thinking about as you were speaking is you implied before that as you go in and, and this this metaphor of cleaning house, I think is is spot on. It makes, and now that you've described it, it makes a lot more sense to me. The idea that you're going in to see what exists and, and what values it bring. And it was all done with good intention to just load the electronic medical record system with reminders and order sets, as you put it. But the the unintended consequence is that you get overutilization, which is bad for patients and obviously costly for whoever's paying for that care. And it also is tremendous extra burden on the providers of care and the teams that are providing care. And so you're really, as you say, that analyzing and that cleaning house is the first order of business before you, you know, you, you reorganize. So I guess the question I would have is when you go into most places, do you see net net a decrease in alerts or sort of a net zero effect? Are you seeing that in the end you're adding more or is that hard to answer that question because every provider group is different? The the optimal outcome is a reduction in overall alerts and virtually all health systems have a lot of low performing, low value alerts, which can be removed uh, or improved. So in most organizations, the goal is always to reduce the overall number of alerts and that for whatever volume of clinical decision support is left, that there is measurable improvement to patient care, improvement in terms of quality and value of care. However, there there are some exceptions. Uh, Rarely we'll find an organization that is implementing an electronic health record or switching from one electronic health record to another electronic health record and implementing it for the first time. And therefore, they have virtually no clinical decision support and uh, therefore no benefit from clinical decision support. And in those instances, the volume of clinical decision support will increase. 
And now, again, importantly, as you said, the, the primary customer, and it sounds like you put the patient and provider together as your primary customer. In terms of outcomes you've achieved in organizations around quality improvement, could you speak to some of that? And I think you, you shared one story so far. And on the other side of that coin, so to speak, is uh, the cost of care. And so have you demonstrated savings? And this, of course, for any organization now, this is critically important, whether you're in uh, risk-based contracts, we're all moving with Medicare towards shared savings rapidly. Uh, and of course, working with employers now, they're all looking at the cost of care. Everyone's looking at the overutilization, which is rampant in healthcare today. And so what evidence or outcomes do you have to share with us around both the demonstration of quality being improved as well as the cost being reduced appropriately? Yes. So I'm a big proponent of evidence-based medicine and evidence-based healthcare. And what we say with all the clinical decision support, including clinical decision support we develop, if there is not evidence of improvements in quality or reductions in costs, you should get rid of it. No value, get rid of it, not helpful. So we've worked very, very hard to measure the impact of uh, clinical decision support that has been implemented, both in terms of quality and in terms of value. So for example, uh, on the cost side, we will look at canceled orders and number of orders that were canceled. So let's say uh, inappropriate MRI for low back pain. How many times was the order for MRI low back after an alert pops up saying that it's potentially inappropriate and providing the evidence that it's inappropriate? How often was it canceled and one did not substitute a different imaging study? And so we look very carefully at that. We also look at reduction in inappropriate orders because we find a learning effect or educational effect. So if someone's seen an alert a few times, healthcare providers are very, very bright and they know the next time they're going to see this alert. So they don't order the same lower back MRI act surprised that they saw the alert and then cancel it. But if they agree with the underlying evidence, that a 66-year-old with mild low back pain of two days duration in the 66-year-old is otherwise healthy, does not need an MRI, they don't order it to begin with. So we look for a reduction of inappropriate orders. Quality of care, critically important. So what we do, because we can't always measure patient outcomes or maybe issues related to sample size and availability of data, but let me give you an example we almost uh, always do. We look at improvements in processes of care and use clinical epidemiology models to try and translate that to improvements in outcomes. So an example might be drugs, uh, benzodiazepines, drugs like Valium or Ativan or Ambien, have been shown to be dangerous for elderly patients. They can cause patients to fall. They can cause patients to have hip fracture. They can cause patients to to die after their hip fracture. So we would take a look at how much we're able to reduce benzodiazepine usage in elderly patients. And then using the clinical epidemiology literature, uh, forecast the projected reduction in falls and the projected reductions in hip fractures if patients in that particular organization are similar to patients in the clinical epidemiology literature. So we think it's critically important to the best of an organization's ability, try and understand the impact of the clinical decision support 
on quality and cost of care. And if clinical decision support cannot be linked to improvements in quality, reductions in costs, it should be removed. Yeah, that's great. No, that's very, very helpful. And do you have, I mean, you should, again, you shared one example, other examples of, you know, saving organizations, decreasing those costs. And, and because uh, again, I think this is something that all organizations are looking to do right now. Clearly, the number one issue is making sure, as you point out, that it is, in fact, a very, very sound evidence-based medicine, that it is appropriate. And then the, the, the cost savings follow from that. And so, uh, you know, unnecessary testing is one example. Medications are another. I'm just wondering if you have any, any quick vignettes or quick stats around that. Well, we have it for all the organizations that are using it. There are over 400 hospitals and about 125,000 providers currently using it. And so we have data from the EHR on all organizations and the impact on uh, cost of care or utilization, and we're able to project the impact on quality. So that's a routine part of the analysis. And, you know, sometimes we see lower improvements in, in costs and quality than we would like. And we talk to the organization and they're able to benchmark their inappropriate care compared to other organizations. And we share with them tips if their reductions in costs and improvement in quality is lower than other benchmark organizations, what they might do to improve their results, uh, clinical and financial results. But one other example comes from Cedar sinai and we published in the August 2018 American Journal of Managed Care. And, and this was a study which we conducted with the advisory board, where the advisory board said, we want to see all the data on inpatient utilization of the, in this particular case, choosing wisely alerts. And they had information from us on Crimson on length of stay, cost per case, complication rate, and readmission rate. And their data scientists said, we don't know whether we're gonna see an association between physicians who follow the clinical decision support recommendations and improve quality and cost outcomes. And we'd like our data scientists to map the two different databases. So they went through the painstaking work of mapping um, the databases of 26,000 patients and they found a statistically significant correlation or association between following the alerts and shorter length of stay, $944 per case, lower cost, and lower complication rate. Now, truth be told, because this was an observational study rather than a randomized controlled clinical trial, we don't know whether there was cause and effect or just providers who happen to follow these alerts also happen to provide better quality and less costly care. But that would be one example. You mentioned a moment ago the number of providers and organizations that are on Stanson. It seems to me this is, given the, the just vast number of clinical decisions, given the rapid rise in evidence base uh, and, and the recommendations you know, it just seems to me that it's almost impossible for any individual provider to keep all of that in their head. And no one has the time to look up all those things. So this just seems like a no-brainer, mandatory. It should be embedded in all electronic systems that all providers are using all the time. And so although the numbers you have are large, actually larger than I had thought, 
but it just seems like it should be, everyone should be using these. And so I guess my question is, you know, are all providers using some sort of clinical decision support or another? And, and if not, how can that be? I'm just, it's just a very, very kind of honest question as I was listening to you. Great question. And, and let me just back up. Zev, I think you're absolutely right. There are 20,000 biomedical journals. An article is published about every 26 seconds. It was said that in 1950, the doubling time of medical information was approximately 50 years. They have projected that in 2020, the doubling time of medical information will be about 73 days. I once heard Dr. Bill Stead from Vanderbilt give a lecture, and he said that if you had a medical resident who finished their uh, training and they knew absolutely everything, she had perfect board scores and knew all that was to be known at the time when she finished her training. She read and retained the information in two articles every night. And Zev, you as a physician, know as well as I do, it's hard to retain all of the information in two articles every single night. I can't do it. But if she did at the end of a year, she would be over 1000 years behind the world's literature. So with the proliferation of proteomics, genomic information, microbiome information, it is absolutely impossible for any human being on the planet, I don't care how absolutely brilliant they are, and even if they have a photographic memory, to remember all of the information that's potentially available to help with the care of an individual patient. And at some point, we're all going to have genomic profiles. So if I develop hypertension, and Zev, if one day you develop hypertension, drug that might be best for me, the most efficacious with the fewest side effects might be different than a drug that might be appropriate for you one day. No one's going to be able to remember it. So I think we're in the earliest stages of clinical decision support. I think it will be absolutely critical for healthcare to be delivered through the use of decision support in the future. And I think it'll become a routine part of practice, just like when I fly, I'm taking a plane uh, tomorrow. And when I fly, I trust that the pilot and co-pilot are going to be using decision support to help me get to my destination safely. And uh, if we also think about the future of autonomous vehicles or self-driving cars, those are really decision support with a chassis, a steering wheel, some tires, brakes, and uh, decision support, detecting information from various sensors and saying the car should turn right, left, speed up, or brake. So I think decision support will be an integral part of all healthcare in the near future. It sounds that it, and it, it sounds like it should be now. You know, as you were speaking, the thought came to mind that it's some sort of, it's uh, almost sort of like computer assisted or artificial intelligence uh, assisted medical care. You know, I had this vision in my mind as you were talking, like, and I didn't, I honestly, I've heard some of those stats before, but the ones you said were even more alarming that there's no way that any single human being, any single provider, no matter how much they try to stay on top of the literature can even I'm, I'm thinking even within a specialty, I mean, you and I practice general internal medicine and th that is just incredibly challenging just because of the, the, the breadth of knowledge required, but even in a specialty, keeping up with that literature. And so what, what is the future here 
And I think in particular, how do you make this doable? Again, I think, I think from, you know, I, I work with lots of physicians and, and we're using clinical decision support and to, to be just transparent about it, we're, we're working with Stanson and, and starting to work with Stanson, which is how I have some familiarity with what you're doing. But, you know, how do you make this doable? How do you, I mean, this has got to be embedded in the clinical practice. It's got to be a part of the clinician's mind, if you will. So I'm just kind of wondering, how are you trying to do that now? I think your intention around trying to unload unnecessary information and unnecessary clinical decision support tools is part of that. But what is what does the near future look like? Well, well, we're undergoing a period of transition. And when I was an intern, I would be called to the emergency department sometimes in the middle of the night for a patient with chest pain. And you'd have to read an EKG. And Zev, you probably had this experience where you'd look for half millimeter or one millimeter of ST elevation or a change in the electrocardiogram. And at one or two in the morning or four in the morning, sometimes the mind would play tricks on me. And it was hard for me to determine with certainty whether it was there or not there, despite my complete attention and recognizing the importance of my determination. And then somewhere during my residency, it became computerized and there was decision support where a computer would read the EKG for me and tell me whether the change in the electrocardiogram was there or not there. And basically tell me whether I should be concerned or not that this patient is having a heart attack or potentially having a heart attack, or it's a normal EKG. That's what's occurring uh, outside of electrocardiogram. So what we're seeing right now are clinical decision support systems, which read the free text, read the discrete data elements, and will provide suggestions to providers and providers will be able to rate um, will know whether they followed the suggestion or they didn't follow the suggestion, whether care changed, whether care changed for the better. If they did not follow the suggestion, whether they put in information to make the clinical decision support better. And so just like I I would think that Amazon, when I order a book on Amazon, it provides me with recommendations about other books that I might like to buy. And it probably learns from me whether I accept those recommendations and buy additional books or I don't and probably refines and evolves the decision support. I think we're going to see the exact same situation occurring in healthcare where uh, future evolutions of the decision support will get better and better. And maybe what would be most helpful for one healthcare provider might be different from another healthcare provider. So the decision support will be tailored over time to reflect the needs and desires of a particular healthcare provider. And right now, you know, again, as, as I'm thinking about the approach that you all have taken to Stanson and the data and the analytics, is the product or service completely carried through the channel of automation and, you know, modifying it for the position? Or are you right now providing the group that you're working with and the leadership of that group with some information? So you could say, look, uh, we noticed that uh, Dr. Newworth is got a pattern of ordering like this. You know, it would be helpful for someone to provide him some education or, or provide him some coaching uh, on this particular topic. And I'm just wondering, are people using the uh, data internally to help their colleagues. One thing I noticed for years is that 
providers have certain areas where they're really strong and other areas where they're less strong. And we all have our sort of favorite subspecialty, particularly in internal medicine, where we kind of gravitate or know a lot more than, let's say, some of our other colleagues and other areas we know a lot less. And so I'm not thinking about this as, as you know, targeting people, but really helping them. And so, because as we know, and you know, for sure, we're all getting measured now. And so if we don't measure ourselves, other people are monitoring us down to the level of the individual physician. So it actually is, uh, you know, just an added benefit if your organization is actually helping you with that as an individual provider. So I'm just curious, do you use that other channel of actually talking to leadership and saying, hey, we've got some information might be helpful for you to help your colleagues? Yes. Great point, Sev, and I'm glad you brought that up, that for many of us, we get a lot of feedback while we're in training about our decisions. So if we're a medical student, we get it from residents. If we're a resident, we might get it from fellows and attending. And then you finish your training, you end up in practice, could be medical group, could be private practice, uh, could be faculty somewhere, and you rarely get feedback on your care. So we do provide that information on uh, a physician's or other healthcare providers practice compared to his or her colleagues to see, do they order more of a certain test or medication than their colleagues, substantially more. So we do an outlier analysis. So an organization might see, Dr. Newworth, you are three standard deviations from your colleagues in terms of ordering more MRIs for low back pain. Just wanted to make you aware Here's the evidence suggesting that early imaging of otherwise healthy low back pain patients who have no danger, symptoms, or signs is not beneficial. And uh, also, you know, please be aware that health plans are trying to use the information through claims data in order to make decisions about which providers are offering the highest value care and differentiating them from healthcare providers who may be offering lower value care. So we think that kind of feedback with clinically granular data compared to evidence-based guidelines where a healthcare can provide or can compare his or herself to their peers is extremely helpful, particularly once one finishes training. Yeah, that's a, such a great point is you have all this intense feedback and rapid improvement and then somehow magically you're supposed to practice, you know, the vast majority of your career without that and without that feedback. And so it, I love that framing. And I think it's a very, very accurate way to, to look at it. So I promised you we would finish before the top of the hour, but of course we've gone over. So I apologize. And I just want to give you the opportunity to, if you've got some other perspective or some other point that we haven't covered or, or a final message you want to share with those that are listening no, I, uh, I thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you today, Zev. And I, I really believe that with advances in technology, natural language processing, machine learning, artificial intelligence, that clinical decision support is going to get better and better. And when I say better and better, uh, I mean that healthcare providers are going to find it much more useful uh, in the future than they do today. And today it's better than it was a year ago and three years ago. And better also means it'll lead to, I believe, lower mortality rates, lower morbidity rates, better quality of life for patients and less costly care. So I am extremely excited and bullish about what I think the future holds for clinical decision support. 
Well, you know, I, I want to thank you for that statement and that comment. I think it's really important. And it's so interesting that you went there because I was actually thinking the same thing a moment ago or a minute ago. You know, people talk about the fact that physicians who are in healthcare, how stressful it is, and it is, and how they wouldn't recommend it to their younger colleagues or to their children. I think that quite the opposite. And, you know, even talking to you today and listening to what you're doing and where it is right now, but also where it's going in the next very, very short period of time, as we advance with artificial intelligence and natural language processing and all that, that the practice of medicine is actually going to be so much more fun and more fun because you've got all the support, but also you're going to be able to do a much better job. And so it's not just that clinical decision support is going to get better. I think the practice of medicine is going to get better um, as well. So I'm just kind of curious about, you know, I mean, you sort of said it, but I'm just curious how you feel about that. I, I feel the exact same way. So a lot of times I will speak to uh, physicians in training and uh, we'll talk about this and the future. And they accept this as the future of medicine. And I always love talking to them because they're going into healthcare, excited. They regard it as they should, as a noble profession, opportunity to help people in their times of need. I think they're very supportive of the systems that will be put in place that will enable them to deliver better care, more efficient care, uh, higher value care in the future, more affordable care for their patients. So I know many of us are concerned about the uh, the future of healthcare, but I think the future of healthcare is going to be lead to better care at uh, lower costs. And I could not be more excited about where healthcare is going today. That's great. So Scott, I just want to thank you so much. I've I've got a whole other interview that I still haven't asked you yet, but we'll hopefully we'll have a time to follow up. And I definitely want to hear some of the progress that you're making at Stanson. Can't thank you enough. Thank you so much, Zev. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. So folks, I want to thank our guest, Scott Weingarten, for being part of creating a new healthcare and bringing us really fresh perspectives and new ideas and bold solutions and also a, a very, very bright perspective on the future of healthcare delivery. And as always, I'd like to thank all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients and those of you who are supporting, directly supporting those who are taking care of patients. I truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important the work is uh, for individuals, families, communities, and our society. You know, I have to say that during this interview, particularly with Scott today, I was literally visualizing providers and patients sitting in the room together and exam rooms and hospital rooms and, and how much what Scott and his colleagues at, at Stanson are doing to help that. And so as always, I hope this podcast provides you with some useful information as well, some encouragement and inspiration. This is Zev Neuwirth on creating a new healthcare. Until next time, be well.